Is depression funny? Oh God, it can be. Yeah. When you, I mean, just, it's just learning to laugh at yourself at times. Now, depression is also a scary, nightmarish void. Something wrong with me, I've got a sadness I can't shake now. Is there something I can't take now? It's the hilarious world of depression. I'm John Moe, and welcome to season three. We're calling it the audience season. Yes, we will still have plenty of profiles of interesting, funny people like we always have. And we're also going to have more of, well, you this time around. Episodes where you answer questions and share wisdom. Live stuff with real people like you in the audience. Guests that you ask for. Because we're not just a show, really. We're part of a conversation. Another big part of that conversation happens over on Facebook, by the way. Look for us over there. Join the community. Get in the discussion. In this episode, we're going to the streets of New York, to kitchens around the world, and to a halfway house in Minnesota. We'll talk about odd foods, career success, depression, anxiety, trauma, alcoholism, and the experience of hitting bottom hard. I'm Andrew Zimmern, and we're here in the recording room at my production company, Intuitive Content, in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Andrew Zimmern lives in Edina, Minnesota with his wife and son. He's been in the food business from a very young age, worked as a chef in some of the finest restaurants in the world, eventually adding author, entrepreneur, and TV star to his resume. And he's hosted several shows on the Travel Channel that have to do with traveling the world, exploring cultures, and often eating some really weird food, like sheep eyeballs. Ready for this? Cheers. I'm watching you. Mm. That's good. All of the flavors of the lamb have sort of concentrated and pooled into this one glob. Andrew's approach of going out and trying things, meeting people and connecting with them is similar to that of one of his close friends and another adventurous TV host, Anthony Bourdain. Bourdain died by suicide in June of 2018, three days before I taped this interview with Andrew Zimmern. We offered to reschedule, but he had said, no, let's do it. Was his death a surprise to you? Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty depressed and sad about it right now. I did not see this coming. I have a pretty good radar uh, for something being off or wrong. Um, but again, it's, it's only as good as what someone tells you. And part of the, the sadness and certainly introspection element for me <clears throat> is that if you, if you play that logic out, no one was around him enough to see, even the people who loved him the most in his life. Andrew was sad when I saw him, but not devastated and not inconsolable. It was a grim kind of sad, gained from losing many people he's known over the years to suicide, substance abuse, mental illness. 
Anthony Bourdain died by suicide while he was traveling. He was in France. Bourdain traveled a lot, and travel can be a big, dangerous trigger for a lot of people with mental illness. Travel is also a huge part of Andrew Zimmern's job. He credits techniques he's learned over 27 years of active sobriety and helping him stay healthy. Because I'm actively sober in a 12-step program, I have a support system. I have daily actions. I have things that I do so that I don't drift off into uh, a place of aloneness. If you're lonely and you're drinking every night, if you're uh, lonely and you don't have a support system and then you have no way to articulate that to anyone, I, I can only imagine it gets worse. Yeah. Um, you know, I pick up the phone and call people. I have a daily spiritual practice. I have um, a lot of different ways to connect to other people and lighten whatever load I'm shouldering that day. Um, because I have, you know, years of therapy, a, a gazillion 12-step meetings, um, active service within my 12-step community, but also outside of my 12-step community, doing things for others mm -hmm. gets me out of my head. Andrew Zimmern is intense, and he's busy. He came right out of one meeting for our interview and rushed off to another meeting immediately after, has a million things going on at once. But he's also making sure that he knows when to just stop and listen. If I bumped into you, you're a, you're a butcher, we're shooting, we're on the set with you, I'm not afraid to ask uh, a question of you. And if you respond, and oh my God, we've had a horrible day, the pigs didn't get delivered, and blah, 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 blah. most people tend to immediately operationalize. Well, didn't you call the, uh, the other pig vendor in town? I mean, a simple, you know, starting to solve the problem is our most unfortunate way to begin to communicate to another human being who is expressing their feelings to us. When somebody is expressing feelings of anger or frustration like that, I used to say, well, call the other pig people in town. Maybe I can call them. You know, I have a lot of pull. We know the butcher down the road. We just shot with him. We were just on a pig farm. Let me call that guy. Uh, that immediately puts up another wall in between us. But if I sit there and listen, to, oh, my God, that's awful. Tell me about that. And you begin to talk about it. It turns out the frustration may not be the pig farm. It's something else that's happened that day. But m more importantly for me, as the person who used to be a, a user of people and a taker of things, I need to do active work to kind of co-regulate with you and make sure that I'm not operationalizing. Once I'm co-regulated with you, and we're actually talking, and by that I mean hearing and listening each other, then I could say, wow, do you need help with that? Mm -hmm. No, I just needed to talk, you know, or, oh my gosh, yes, it's so crazy today. My wife is coming down here. Can you tell her while I'm getting ready? I mean, it's just a, it allows us emotional co-regulation builds safety in our relationships. It builds a strong enough foundation, even immediately. So, okay, cool. Here we have an eloquent guy who has come to an understanding of his own mind, who acknowledges the help of others and who helps others in return. Neat. How very positive and great. Well, here's a twist that you may have seen coming. It was not always this way. 
let's back up to New York City in the 60s. I think the depression and the mental health issues, even though I didn't know what they were. When did those come along? Probably when I was five, six years old. What was that like? A a lot of acting out, a lot of misbehavior. I, I remember stealing things when I was seven or eight years old, and it was bunches of things. Only bunches of things satisfied me. Like I would steal a bag of a thousand fish hooks, <laughs> stuff like that. Because every seven-year-old or needs fish hooks. nails from the hardware store. Why? I don't know, just to play with them and collect them and lay them out like little soldiers. But that acting, that risk-taking, uh-huh. it, it's, I mean, I'm the biggest risk-taker I know today. I'm constantly taking risks, uh, hopefully slightly more managed. Um, But I remember those feelings. I remember feelings of anger. The onset of mental pain was closely followed by efforts to numb it up. When were those first drinks and drugs? Oh, gosh. Uh, Seven, eight, nine, ten. Really? Oh, yeah. I would sip my dad's drinks all the time. My cousins were older, and they'd give me glasses of champagne on the rocks and tell me it was ginger ale at parties. And the first time, I didn't know. But the second time, I knew because I knew the feeling that came from chugging it. I knew the feeling that came from taking a couple sips of my dad's drink. You know, my parents divorced when I was five. My mother was engaged in a lot of behavior that wasn't necessarily safe for a child. Um, like what? She ended up uh, 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 relationship issues. Um, and I, I never saw it as abandonment. But, uh, uh, you know, one story is an example that wasn't that unusual. You know, when I was seven, eight, nine years old, young boy, uh, my mother had a boyfriend whose uncle owned a bar on the Upper West Side. And several times we would go up there and she would stash me at Uncle Terry's bar, which had wooden floors. I mean, this is the 60s in New York. It was a real old bar, you know, with wooden floors that had been soaked with beer for so long. It just, it stank. And, you know, I'd have a Coca-Cola and some books and some coloring, and she'd say, I'm going to go, you know, with Bert for a couple hours. Uncle Terry's going to watch you. So, Were uh, you drinking at that bar? No, 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 no. My, my mother's behavior in there, and that's not to blame. That's simply to acknowledge things that hurt and traumatize so that we can heal from it. Trauma that's not transformed is transmitted. I don't want to transmit it to my kid or to the people around me. So I'm I'm very interested in understanding those traumas and where they were in my life and what created a lot of anxiety in me where I ended up reaching out for my medicine, drugs and alcohol, which took away that feeling at first. Andrew grew up in privilege. His father was an advertising executive. Andrew went to Dalton, a prestigious prep school, college at Vassar. Depression and alcohol announced themselves early in Andrew's life. But so did another very powerful force, food, and not just like mac and cheese. You know, when I was traveling with my father, you know, it was so romantic to sit under the Roman aqueduct in Valle de los Caídos in Spain at age 12 and eat roasted fetal pig and, you know, all the other sides that come with it. And, you know, 2 a.m., you know, business meetings that he would have in Leal with another colleague at the French ad agency uh, that he was uh, working with at the time. Uh, and I'm sitting there picking at a plate of bigorneau, those small little blue periwinkle snails. Um, 
cooked in wine and garlic and just watching the the stevedores and the the you know the sleepy beauty of late night Paris in 1969, 70. I mean, just the, the romance of it just swept me up. By the time I got into high school, my father was like, you have to get a job during the summertime. You can't just loaf around our house in Long Island and go to the beach. And all my friends were getting jobs with, um, you know, landscape companies, which would hire young high school kids, you know, with strong shoulders and strong backs. And you hauled dirt and manure and built berms and, you know, did all the other stuff. And you were paid pretty well. Um, and everybody was getting those jobs. Uh, I thought that was the silliest thing I'd ever heard in my life. I said, I want to be at the tennis club and at the at the beach during the day. I want to be where the girls are. Um, and then I want to be where the action is at night which to me was restaurants, lots of people. I mean, theater up every, you know, curtain up every, every, uh, every night. And I just was thrilled by the work and I was learning and I loved, I loved the romance of restaurants. I loved everything about it. Did it feel like a, a balm for the depression? Only looking backwards can I see that it removed me from dealing with my mother than dealing with my father. By high school, I've already experienced the trauma that the two of them gave me, both around abandonment issues and and uh, other related issues. Um, and so looking back in the rearview mirror, it's really easy to say, well, I mean, even though I didn't know it at the time, I had no idea what this trauma was. I wasn't even acknowledging it. Uh, what I was really doing was saying, I'm not going to be around you. I'm going to go off and do my own thing. I'm independent and I made a good living uh, in, you know, made more money in the restaurants at night uh, than I would have at the landscaping place. And I just loved food. I just loved everything about it. And I love food people who are the greatest people in the whole world. I had a lot of talent, natural talent and ability. Um, I had been cooking since a very young age. And, you know, when you're in high school, age 14, freshman year, and you're working every summer in restaurants, you know, you start to develop a, a skill set. Everything happens early with this guy. We heard about mental illness issues from age five. He's a culinary prodigy at 14. Gets a pretty big jump on drug use and on realizing that he has a problem. The first inkling that I had was when I was about 15. Um, about four or five of us were were blowing a joint in the alley behind school at 745 in the morning. And the other people were taking, you know, one or two hits on the joint as it was going around this circle of, of friends and it was eight in the morning and they were like, yeah, that's enough. I'm, you know, I'm as high as I want to be, whatever, however they were communicating that I'm fine. And me and another guy who has ended up in this program, uh, in recovery, I mean, we literally kept smoking it and then fought over the very end of the thing. Um, and then I remember being really high walking to school. So I ducked into, you know, like a, a back door, you know, a, a place in the alley where I could like sort of be, you know, warm against the wind. It was fall. Um, and I took out a vial and did a couple spoonfuls of Coke and walked into school. 15 years old. And yeah. So I, I essentially, I mean, that, that is, the, it, it was the beginning of what became my love affair with speedballing, um, you know, mixing high and low, uh, drugs. Um, and you just kind of be even, but highly medicated on them. And 
I, I, I remember it that day just thinking to myself, I am so much – I'm using much differently than the way my friends are using. So that was the first that, – that was the first time I ever thought, hmm, I have a problem. Um, it got much worse. It's interesting. You see Andrew today, and he doesn't just like cooking. He is at the center of a massive multimedia food empire. He isn't just interested in promoting mental health. He serves on boards and does tons of volunteer work. And when you look at his story, that kind of go-all-the-way mentality is always there. It's always been there. Remember, he didn't steal a fish hook. He stole a thousand fish hooks. He doesn't just work in restaurants. He travels the world doing it. I went to high school and got good grades. You know, my drug addiction and alcoholism building at the time. You know, my buddy and I were the, you know, in our senior year, were the dealers in our high school. Uh, the baton passed from two other friends of ours, you know. And, uh, you know, I got into a good school. Um, I loved art history and history, uh, majored in the two of them. I was on the five and a half year plan, took a lot of time off, some, uh, you know, required by the school for bad grades and behavior issues. Uh, others just on, on my own and, you know, cooked in Italy, cooked in France, cooked in Hong Kong. And what, then what was it about food, though? What, why was that the inevitable path for Andrew? The, the, the single greatest cultural tool in our kit for interpreting and sharing our worlds with each other uh, is food. Uh, math and music are the other cultural totems that are very, very big. Um, but if you take away someone's quadratic equation or their boombox, you might – well, who cares? If you take away someone's quadratic equation, nobody really cares. If you take away someone's boombox, you may get punched in the face. But if you take away bread and rice, that is the stuff that revolutions are made of. Food – we swim in it daily. It is the it is the primordial ooze of of our culture. But were you grasping that at a young age? Uh, intellectually, no. Vibing on it, yes. He finally graduates from Vassar in '84. Diploma in hand, depression and addiction not under control whatsoever, and with enormously strong cooking skills, he goes to work in New York City. It seems to me that kitchens, busy restaurants, it seems like there's drug use going on there. It seems like there are sometimes uh, some mental health issues. It seems like there is enormous amounts of stress. To me, you're describing almost every business in America. Well, okay. Do you think restaurants are different than other workplaces in yes. America in terms of stress and how people manage it? Yes. I mean, that's where and, – and, that, and, and you also have to understand that historically – it was as you describe. Yeah. I mean, it's an interesting link back to Bourdain. I mean, you know, his New Yorker article that took so long to get out there that ended up becoming Kitchen Confidential sort of lifted the lid on what's going on in restaurants. Mm -hmm. But that was the life that we were all leading, you know, back in the 80s. I mean, there wasn't a restaurant that I worked in. And, I'm, and, I'm, and some of them were Michelin starred restaurants here in America uh, or that quality. They didn't have the Michelin Guide. The daily drug use, the drug use in the environment, the stress, the anger, the emotions, the um, 
the the violence fights out in the alley uh, chefs you know when I came up you know in the late 70s early 80s in Europe and here um, you know chefs throwing plates or you know uh, you know getting wrapped across the knuckles for not cutting something the right way mm. um, that happened who were you in that scenario oh I ended up being both uh, because obviously you know I just ended up repeating what had been so freely right. uh, to given to me. Yeah. Um, so when I took over kitchens and became the chef, um, I exhibited a lot of behaviors that are just absolutely repugnant to me now. Coming up, what happens when trauma, depression, and addiction meet up with a stressful career and heavy drinking? Well, it's not good. Plus, a longer discussion of animal testicles than I ever expected to have. The Hilarious World of Depression is supported by Health Partners and by MakeItOK.org. Make It OK is a campaign to start conversations and stop the stigma surrounding mental illness. Not just depression, but all kinds of mental illnesses. We enjoy having a lot of laughs on this show sometimes. It's a way of dealing with depression, a way of maybe demystifying depression a bit, make it not so scary. But let's not kid ourselves. This is a serious disease. The good news is that people can and do recover. They get help. And that's why we need to make it okay to talk openly. It can be an awkward conversation, a difficult topic, absolutely, but makeitok.org is full of information that you can use. What to say, what not to say, and stories from people who tell you what it's like to live with depression, anxiety, and other mental illnesses. Go to makeitok.org where you can take the pledge to make it okay. Thank you so much to Health Partners and to Make It Okay for joining us in fighting stigma so we can all get better. Back with Andrew Zimmern, best known today as someone who eats weird food on TV, like purple yam and cheese ice cream on a bun in the Philippines. A popular combo here, it turns out. It's just not right. But I defend your right to eat it to the death. It just tastes like frozen butter on a bun. Here, you try it. Earlier in the show, you heard Andrew say that trauma that isn't transformed is transmitted. You deal with it and address it and evolve from it, or you kick it down the road for your kids or your friends or a later version of yourself to deal with. Andrew's substance use and the mental health issues around it hadn't been transformed, and things fell apart. He wouldn't show up for work. No one wanted to work with him, and he was running out of options. You know, I had pulled every last con that I could, and my father had me, uh, had co-signed an apartment that I was living on West 43rd Street over by the the Hudson River, 10th Avenue. Um, Chris Farley actually lived in the same building, hmm. um, and we would see each other at four or five in the morning. There, There is a sheriff of state of New, of city of New York. And he basically performs evictions. And I just, I wasn't paying any bills. There were newspapers that were three years old in my apartment. The phone was pulled out of the jack in the wall. I was conning my mother to give me money. I was doing quote unquote consulting work and, you know, getting an advance in cash, then never showing up and uh, going at night and drinking in this uh, dollar a shot bar, you know, a Blarney Stone type thing over on 11th Avenue. 
And uh, then one day the sheriff of New York came and took all my stuff and evicted me from the building. And my mother wouldn't help me. My father wouldn't help me. My friends wouldn't return my phone calls. I'd finally burned every last bridge and would, you know, I, I, I had my first sort of inkling of I don't care whether I live or die that day because my decision wasn't to talk to somebody about it, wasn't to go to my best friend's house and say, I, I know you don't want to talk to me, but I'm just going to sit here until you do because I need help so badly. But my best thinking said go to the bar and get wasted. So I went down to the bar and got wasted. And, it, you know, it's two in the morning and the guys are, you know, I'm like, I don't have a place to sleep tonight. And they're like, oh, you can come stay. We are crashing a building down on Sullivan Street in lower Manhattan. I'm like, awesome. And they're like, come along. And so I came along with my green army bag filled with clothes that I managed to, you know, throw in there when the federales were, mm -hmm. you know, raiding my apartment, uh, which is how I saw it. Um, and so I spent the next oh, – 11 to 13 months squatting that building on Sullivan Street, sleeping on a pile of dirty clothes that I – every morning I would get up and I would steal a, a jar of Comet cleanser or Ajax cleanser from the bodega and sprinkle it around the pile of dirty clothes so that the roaches and the rats wouldn't crawl over me every night when I came back to my corner of that room and passed out. So here's a guy who's brilliant with food. He loves everything about food and restaurants and the people around them. It's his world. But addiction is a strong bastard. It can take over and shut out everything else. It can make itself the only thing that really matters. The largest source of my income was uh, from selling uh, contents of women's purses down to my old drug dealers in Alphabet City because I knew the restaurant scene. And all these like posh bistros had opened up on Madison Avenue and the Europeans had started to invade New York en masse. And so they had passports and credit cards and everything in there. And I was much more nimble than I am now. So I would walk down Madison Avenue, 64th, 65th Street, scoop up a purse or two because sometimes you could grab two on the same run. And then I would bolt. I'd make a right-hand turn and head towards Fifth Avenue. So I had one block to run. Now, at lunchtime, those streets were clogged just like they are now. So no cop car was getting through. Mm -hmm. So the only way I was going to get caught was if someone could chase me down or if authorities could radio ahead and someone was, could intercept me at Fifth Avenue. Now, this was, you know, 1990, uh, 91. So uh, technology being what it was, uh, I was able to sort of niftily evade the authorities. I would jump the wall at Central Park, reverse my jacket, shed the purses, grabbing all the credit cards, passports, cash, whatever was in there that was of value, um, keep cash for myself, sell the passports and credit cards and stuff like that down downtown where those guys had access to – people who would take it off their hands. And that would keep you in, in booze and drugs for the day. That would keep me in booze. I, I had quit doing hard drugs. I mean, hard drugs clearly were, you know, a problem. So I had quit them uh, the year beforehand. 
responsibly. <laughs> responsibly. Um, I had been I had been using, uh, you know, heroin, cocaine, uh, hypnotic tranquilizers like plastic, all this stuff. I mean, just every single day. What's your uh, depression like during methicolone, all this? Methicolone. Uh, relieved. Yeah. Um, Anesthetized. I'm certainly, yeah. I'm not feeling anything. I'm, I'm so... I'm so high all the time. Uh, the only time that my my mental health issues, depression, anxiety, um, diagnosed ones, would emerge would be in the morning where I would feel this ace bandage of pain and anxiety across my chest. And I could just feel it start to tighten as I woke up. I mean really tighten where I had to do something to alleviate that. And that's why my day drinking and day using before I got out of bed. Um, and sometimes never made it out of bed that day. Something to note, Andrew Zimmern was dealing with depression. Alcohol is a depressant. At the very end, I stole a bunch of jewelry from my godmother, uh, you know, booked a week at a flophouse hotel room called the San Pedro that's no longer in New York City, uh, gave a couple hundred dollars to the guy downstairs and said, don't, you know, you know, don't, don't knock, knock on the on door. The door. Yeah. Uh, went across the street, bought two cases of Pawpaw vodka, just come out in plastic bottles. And uh, and I remember because as I was throw, I remember throwing them. It's one of the few things I remember about the room was finishing them and throwing them. Uh, pulled the phone cord out of the wall and just tried to drink myself to death. I, I was convinced at that time that there were winners and losers in life, and I was a loser. I mean, look where I mean, I had the best education. I had I was smart. I was talented in my profession. I had tons of people that loved me. I never listened to a single one of them. Um, I, I, you know, I had a criminal record. I, I mean, you know, how how much worse could it be? The answer to me was not at all. And why why bother going on if it's just going to get worse? Because what I was enduring was so awful, and uh, I just decided I was going to drink myself to death. That would seem to me to be the easiest way to do it. And uh, I just started drinking around the clock and passing out, and drinking around the clock and passing out. And I, for whatever reason, after about four or five days, I woke up one morning and that ace bandage of tension and anxiety was not there for the first time in memory. And I mean, since I was a kid, memory. Um, so much so that even talking about it now, I can remember every moment of that feeling of it not being there. And I walked over and plugged the phone into the wall and called one of my best friends and he I mean, everyone thought I was dead and no one had seen me for a year. And he said, where are you? And I said, I'm at the San Pedro Hotel. And I said to him, can you come get me? And he said, yeah, do not move. And a half hour later, he was there, tried to drive me out of his house. I drank every bottle of booze in, in his under his sink. Um, and then, you know, two days later, walked into what was an intervention, not my first, but luckily my last. And that was uh, the morning of January 28th, 1992. And I've been sober ever since. 
Of all the privilege Andrew Zimmern had squandered, all the resources wasted, all the bridges burned, there was still just enough goodwill to get him to the Hazelden facility, now known as the Hazelden Betty Ford Center in Minnesota. After completing treatment, he moved down to the Twin Cities, where there's a strong community of people like him, New Yorkers who had gone through Hazelden and wanted to build a new, healthier life in Minnesota. I had some friends who had gotten sober that I'd gone to high school with who were living out here in Minnesota, and they hooked up with me right away. And, you know, I was, you know, I went one night to my very first uh, 12-step meeting, and I uh, got a ride from someone, and they dropped me off, and it was on a, in a house set back a little bit with a little sidewalk going straight up the steps to this, this house where they had several meetings going on at once. And there was a woman standing there sort of halfway on the sidewalk. There was snow on the ground. The sidewalk was clean. Um, it's an exaggeration to say I had flip-flops, but I did not have winter shoes. And I started walking towards her, and, and I was clearly starting to veer to move around her. Number one, I didn't know why she was blocking the, the sidewalk. Um, I did not know or realize that she was actually a greeter uh, for the meeting. And she was dressed in a tweed skirt and jacket set with a short fur jacket over her and a matching fur hat and gloves and uh, really elegant sort of high heel, sturdy leather shoes. She looked like the aunt that you see in all the – the older aunt you always see in all the movies. Big smile, uh, pin in her hair um, and she smelled good. I remember – Wonderful perfume coming as I as I got it. I, I tried to evade her, and she kind of pulled me in, and she gave me a little side hug, and she said, "Welcome." And then her eyes went to the next someone coming up behind me, and I I had the fifteenth spiritual experience of that month of that six week period. Um, but it was a very powerful one because I realized I hadn't been I hadn't been welcomed or wanted anywhere. And it was one of those many little moments that uh, I now believe are divinely inspired, however you describe that nature of divinity. I call it a higher power. I don't know if there is a God, but I use that word only because it's convenient. It makes it so much easier. And uh, But that thing that's in charge of this, you know, crazy universe um, gave me an incredible gift that night and that woman was there and uh, it changed that, – that changed me forever. Why did you stay in Minnesota instead of going back to New York? It was working. Uh, Minnesota saved my life. It was working. Um, having a system, going back to what we talked about at the very beginning with, with Tony and being on the road, the advantages of having a system that other people have used to get well, to be part of a community of wellness, to be part of a community where – where, you know, honesty and transparency is mandatory. Um, it's a must. 
in our pro- – how you do it is up to you, but it's a must. And to be on that same journey with other people where you can laugh about depression and drinking and drugging and the horrible things that we do. I was a user of people and a taker of things and it's an easy way to talk about it. Um, But I also did horrific things to myself and to people around me when I was out there. There was nothing that I wouldn't do for a drink, whether that is, uh, you know, rolling someone. I used to go to uh, nightclubs that I knew from the days when I would attend them and I would wait in the alley area, which was a nightclub in New York, Eric Good's nightclub that I used to go to all the time, uh, you know, when I was presentable. But then when I was homeless, I would wait in the alley and you just wait for some guy to come stumbling along. You just pull him in and take his wallet. I mean, it was the easiest thing in the whole world, take his watch. I mean, it was, it was almost like the, no fight was put up. Um, I there was n- there was no line that I didn't cross, and you know, at the same time, to be able to joke and laugh about it that in in meetings in community sharing that with other people the good and the bad is such a healing thing. And it helps you make progress and it helps you understand the value of transparency and it helps it, – it helps take a lot of the – any gloomy times and turn them around. Um, it's – you know, I have, a, I have a design for living that works. In Minnesota, he found work in restaurants and eventually became one of the top chefs in Minneapolis. He started doing radio around town and then local TV, then cable TV. He's also nuts about the Minnesota State Fair, which has a great deal of unusual food. Lefsa is a Scandinavian flatbread made from pressed potato starch and smeared with Minnesota's favorite farmhouse seasonings, butter and sugar. It's got all the flavor of undercooked flour combined with the texture of a stale tortilla. So crazy. (laughs) Andrew Zimmern's won awards, he's written books, and he's able to manage his addiction and his life and get help for his depression as well. And he's become pretty famous in part because of this special skill that he has for tasting and poignantly describing the kinds of foods you and I will probably never eat. Tony used to joke a lot uh, publicly. He would say it from the stage, you know, when the wad of, you know, dried, moldy, fermented walrus anus was passed. Tony said, at least when I was eating it, I was drinking. (laughs) <laughs> and, you know, he said, Andrew's, my friend Andrew is, you know, does it sober. He said, I have absolutely no clue how that happens. Um, so, yeah, the, the Guinness Book of World Records, I, I'm I don't has any human being eaten as many species uh, of animals testicles as I have. I can't think of anything that anybody has said after the phrase walrus anus was said in this interview. It's all just clicks and whistles to me. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I mean, if anyone from uh, the GWR group is is listening, I think I should just be awarded. I think the number is up to like 56 different animal balls. Yeah. I mean, I don't think anyone even comes close. It seems like there would be a town festival where somebody attempted this, but no, wrong. no, because available at that town festival are only a limited number of testicles, right, from different animals that are local to there. I've traveled around the world, 
Yes. I mean, the number of... The exotic testicles you've consumed around the world. Well, just total number. I mean, let's not say exotic, just animals that exist only in Indigenous some far-flung places. That's yeah. correct. I'm just going to leave you with having to imagine the visual end of this clip where we can hear Andrew Zimmern sampling turtle testicles. <laughs> I'm stumped, Dale. What are those? Balls. I would imagine turtle balls are pretty good. You want to taste them? Do I want to taste them? That's, that's better than calves' liver. That's better than than kidneys. That's fan. That's fantastic. Very clean, soft, and mushy. And Beautiful. Maybe it's the idea. What it was, I don't. Know. Oh, okay. Well, thank you. At least there we go. Right. A little bit. A little bit of honesty. That's, that's all I'm looking for. No problem. Been there, done that. The Hilarious World of Depression is produced by American Public Media. Our producer is Chrissy Pease. Christina Lopez is our web and social media maestro. Kate Moose is executive producer. Recording engineer this time around was Michael Osborne, technical director Corey Schreppel. TV clips courtesy of Travel Channel. Our theme song was written and performed by Rhett Miller. If you need help, confidential help is available at the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, 1-800-273-8255. It's free, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. 1-800-273-8255 or 1-800-273-TALK. The Hilarious World of Depression is supported by health partners and MakeItOK.org. Make It OK is a campaign to start conversations and stop the stigma around mental illness. MakeItOK.org has information that can help you and your loved ones. Starting a conversation about mental health and mental illness can be awkward. Make It OK has tips on what to say and what not to say. Stories of hope from people who've been there. Take the pledge to Make It OK at MakeItOK.org. Hilariousworld.org is our web home. You can hear all previous episodes there. We're also on Twitter. Look for us and come visit us on Facebook. A lot of great conversation happening there with your fellow Thwadballs. New shows being formed in that Facebook area. It's a good hang. On our next episode, Tom Tran, military combat veteran, Purple Heart recipient, stand-up comedian, arena rock enthusiast. And all I kept thinking is... If I'm going down, it's in a hail of bullets and a blaze of glory and a John Bon Jovi song is going to be playing behind me and I'm taking everyone out with me. That's what I would think. I thought you were going to go with living on a prayer right there. No, that's too happy. I'm John Moe. Bye now. This great big smile is just for show. What if I was to tell you this is just grease paint? Say I'm a hopeless case Say it ain't so Would you say I'm a sad clown Tell me something I don't know Would you say I'm a sad clown Tell me something I don't know